I'm Martin Henry. I'm the research coordinator here at Education International. And today we're going to be talking to Christina Colclough, who uh, is a international expert on the future of work and she's running a new outfit which is called the why not lab which is a pro-union approach to the way that we're going to make work happen in the future now before we get into the questions christina i want to acknowledge a couple of things um christina is on our reference group for the future of work in education and is going to be working with us on our survey which we have out now to all member organizations which is looking at the future of work in education and it has a number of strands around digitalization pedagogy and other things and we'll refer to that briefly at the end but for the main body of the podcast we're going to be getting into and digging into this very complicated issue which is the future of work the future of work is a huge topic it's one that affects everyone everywhere but futures thinking is often outside of science fiction notoriously woolly what are the biggest likely changes in the way people will approach the world of work in the terms of average classroom teacher will understand yeah, that's a great question, Martin, and and thanks again for, for inviting me here. Now, I want to ask all of the people listening to this to just reflect a little bit. When you hear the word or the term, the future work, do you go, oh, that's exciting, or do you go, oh, that again? And I think what we really have to understand is the future work is actually not in the future. It's right now. It's happening. It's happening across every single sector, every single occupation. It's especially happening within the field of education as well. And we just have to really understand and appreciate and come to terms with the fact that the world of work is changing, our societies are changing, our democracies are changing, and and we have to act within all of that. So... To answer your question more more directly, Martin, uh, pause. I forgot what the question was. (laughs) (laughs) We're looking at what are the biggest likely changes in the way people will approach the world of work. So if we think about the shifts going on, digitalization, the things that you're talking about there, what are the biggest goalpost shifts, if you like, that we're likely to experience in the near future? The digital world of work or digitalization, how that is going to change the way we work is multifold. But very concretely, we're going to be learning, as we're already doing now, not least because of COVID, to use electronic or digital tools to do our jobs. We're also going to have to learn very soon to work with intelligent systems. So systems that will interact with you, maybe ask you questions, or you will have to, in your in your uh, sector, evaluate children or students using a tool which will then have an intelligence in it, which will guide you to, to certain ways of thinking or questions you should be asking the children. It will also require of us 
a, a constant reskilling, right? As you, as a teacher, you know, you don't only have to be good at the act of teaching, you also have to be able to feel comfortable in using these new tools. So that's sort of the apparent things. That's the way that we're going to see it happening. But most of this is behind the scene. Most of, of, of this digital world is something we don't see. And it has to do with the data, the algorithms. And this will require of the unions in Education International that we really, really start thinking about how can we lobby for good data rights, teachers' data rights, the students' data rights, uh, within the world of work and for workers in general, we have very poor data rights in relation to all of the data that, that the schools are even gathering on you as a teacher. So that's one thing that we have to learn to grapple with. And then secondly, in our collective agreements, we're going to have to learn to negotiate the algorithm i.e. govern these intelligence systems, make sure that if it is supposedly fair, that we ask the question, but fair for whom? Fair for the school, fair for the owners of this technology, fair for the students, fair for us as teachers. So how we work as unions, our shop stewards, uh, but also our general political lobbying will need to change and quite rapidly so. Okay, when you say the word algorithm, I go weak at the knees. As a classroom <laughs> teacher, I don't necessarily know what it is you're on about. So I'm going to keep bringing you back to the classroom teacher perspective. We have, as you know, here at Education International, set up a Future of Work in Education reference group. And what we're looking at there is talking to experts like yourself to give us a way of unraveling these issues in a way that our members can understand. Now, I want to refer you to the International Labour Organization, and I actually met you there at an ACTRAV meeting. So you're very familiar with working with the workers in this setting. And the ILO has done some, I believe, groundbreaking work on the future of work. Their commission on the future of work came up with a superb report, which talked about human capabilities, about a human-centered future, about a way of thinking about the shifts that are happening in the workplace that are centered around what we are as human <laughs> beings. And I believe in that. So can you just take us through some thinking around how we can firm up the need for everybody to have a lifelong learning guarantee, which they refer to in that report and we support, and the impact this might have on education, not only as providing students with the ability to work throughout their life, but also adults having access to education as they go along. Yeah, that's another great question. So, oh, there's a lot I could talk about there, but on the lifelong learning aspect, Two things. One thing, a word of caution first, because a lot of employers are using, yeah, 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 um, people need to re and upskill. They're using that as if that is the main topic of the future work. They, you know, they want to hide away this whole thing around data rights, around the algorithms, the AI, the artificial intelligence and all that. They want to hide that and just say skills. But if you notice, they never mention who's going to pay. And at, in a, at a time 
in our development where more and more people are on contract, loose contracts, temporary agency contracts, zero-hour contracts, where the permanent job is becoming less and less the norm, then you have to ask yourself, okay, but who's going to pay for these people's training? their lifelong learning. And this is where, and I totally agree with you, Martin, the ILO Global Commission's report was was spot on in saying we need our governments, we need our public and private uh, employers to work with the unions and create maybe training funds on a national or on a sector level that all workers, no matter what type of contract they have, that they can apply for courses, but also maybe that their loss of income is covered whilst they are re- and upskilling. So for me, the re- and upskilling should almost be human right to have access to this and to have it Um, We can't accept that this increasing precarious world of work is then left for the individual to pay for his or her own training. The second part of this puzzle also, how comfortable are we with the fact that we continuously have to re-and-upskill? You know, before you could get an education, you could get a job, and then you learn on the job and you progressed and so on, and that was enough. With these technologies, we're going to have to learn and acquire new skills constantly. And I think, you know, mentally we have to become more comfortable with this notion of change. So if we are that and we get these social funds, social educational funds, so all workers in all forms of work can have access to re and upskilling. These are two fundamental requirements. And I would also say, as a third little leg on this here, we cannot accept that our public sector, our private sector, you know, increasingly automate things, introduce robots, artificial intelligence, and all of this without the obligation to cater for the workers. You know, they they have to do that. They have to invest in our re and upskilling in just transition policies. You know, if you might even be educated out of the educational field, but then into something else. So they have to have that obligation. uh, And that's something, of course, that unions are going to have to push for. So what do you think is the relationship between the digital world of work and the more traditional world of work? You've done a lot of work in your career around that digital realm. And I've spent most of my career in the very real realm of students throwing chairs across the classroom (laughs) or whatever it is. And, And it's quite a different interaction you have. So how do these two worlds come together? Well, they come together first and foremost by us as teachers, as union people, in understanding the implications of this digital world. Now, to answer your question, I need to bring in a little anecdote here. And that is, you know, what is all of this about data? You know, and if you think every time you use your phone, right, it is giving you, you know, you can use a map in it or you can use your Facebook app. Well, all of those things are offered to you for free. Yes, you bought the phone, but the rest of it is for free if you have access to the internet. Now, every time you use your credit card, suddenly the credit card owners, they know if you're shopping organic fruit or non-organic fruit, or you like meat or not meat. 
everything we do in this digital world is creating data about us. And this data is sold. It is worth a lot of money. And we have whole new companies called data miners, data brokers, who assemble data and sell it and so on. So we have to realize, number one, that everything we do that has to do with the digital tool is creating this data. So going back to the classroom, where I've learned from working with you that more and more digital tools are used in the act of teaching or appraisal or following the children or the students in their progression, in their physical progression, their social progression, their intellectual progression, well, all of that is creating data as well. So... Nothing, and I think this is probably my most important message, is there's nothing called a free lunch. What I'm saying there is that we have to start thinking about, as a teacher, as a school, as an authority, we have to start thinking about who owns this data, who controls it. Who do we as the teachers or do the students, the children, do they have a right to rectify this data? What if a kid is you know, difficult when they're young and they get bad scores in this automated evaluation schema? Will that follow them for the rest of their lives? Will it make them hard to be employed when they grow up? Will it mean that they get pushed into a certain type of school and not a different type of school? So we need to start asking these questions. Who owns the data? Who has the right of access to this data, who can rectify it, how do we safeguard our human rights, but also as workers, our workers' rights. So yes, you will still have children throwing chairs and hopefully they will. And hopefully after COVID, we'll be back in the same classroom together and socializing and learning and playing and, and so forth. But there will be this additional uh, element to your work, which is uh, this digital realm. Now, that's in the classroom, but I've also learned from, from working with you, Martin, that there's a lot of surveillance going on around the teachers themselves. When do they come to work? How often do they have class-facing um, lessons? Uh, how much bureaucracy or admin work do they do? Uh, when do they log on? When do they log off? And so on. And here it is so important that the unions also ask for access to this data the right to say no to this data, and very importantly, the right to know who is this data sold to. Is it repackaged and sold? The time of COVID has only amplified all of this, uh, and you make some crucial points. And if we think about China on one end of the continuum, where surveillance is happening at a rate which is eye-watering, and you think about the EU on the other, where we've set up some protections around GDPR that many are letting slip away as the pandemic passes along, well, there are some messages you're making around regulation and our need for absolute vigilance as teachers and unions in making sure that this does not encroach on our lives. And if we look at a blended employment future, and we're talking now about blended activism, we have to be activists in the way that we're responding to this issue in the digital realm via webinars and Twitter and what have you. And as we come back into the real face-to-face -face work, then there's going to have to be a mix of the two. And we've been talking to young members about how 
more, much more agile they are in this realm than some of our, uh, uh, of our more experienced unionists. What is the extent to which we can target some industries more than others in this work, some schools more than others, some teachers more than others, and how do we make that sort of learning accessible to everyone? Oh, so a bunch of questions there, Martin, right, in, in the difference between China, the super surveillance and so forth. I understand if some of you listening to this are thinking, oh, this sounds like something out of Black Mirror, right, the series on Netflix, or this sounds like science fiction. Can this be true? And, and I really urge you to, to, to understand, yes, this is true, right? And yes, this, this surveillance, this digitalization is everywhere, yet nowhere to be seen. And this is what makes it very, very difficult. In relation to the young people, I think the future of unionism depends on us listening to them. We really, really have to understand, yes, they are more agile. They can quick and move in and out of the digital world, the physical world. They have, you know, if you look at a child age two years old with an iPad, you know, they know how to function and all of this. What we can teach them maybe, although I think we also have to teach ourselves this, is to be more critical. You know, nothing, as I said before, comes for free. What does this tool know about you? What demands should we have in return to them? Now, you mentioned something about the GDPR. Now, we have lots of rights in the GDPR as unions and workers that I don't actually think we use. Now, one of them has to do with so-called DPIAs, Data Protection Impact Assessments. So when a new company, public or private, brings in a new tool, they have to make an impact assessment. If this tool has anything to do with us as teachers or, or the students, they are obliged to consult with the unions. Do they? Are we involved in this? Probably not. So there's something that we really should use. I also want to caution that uh, there's a... Absolutely brilliant professor at Oxford University. Her, na her name is Sandra Wachter. She's a professor of law. And she has shown that whilst the GDPR gives us certain rights over the data that goes into a system, we have actually very few, if any, rights over how that system then churns all of this data, creates data sets and makes these profiles on us. Are you a good student, a bad student, a good teacher, a bad teacher in its most simple form? So here the unions have to start lobbying for much, much stronger data rights also over these influences, as it's called, these profiles. There's a number of fronts where this in and out of the digital world, the physical world will continue. There's a number of fronts where we must continue in your field as, ed as education unions to push for the, the causes, the good working conditions, the occupational health and safety that you do, the wages, but that we have to add this digital dimension. So when we look at how we do this, how we move systems and we move our ability as unionists to interact with them, what do you think we can do to co-opt the international organizations like ILO, UNESCO, OECD and others into this work? What are, what are, are the, the biggest levers we have and what is the, the way that we can actually make a difference? Also, the biggest, the biggest way you can make a difference is to work together. Now, this, this almost sounds like, well, yeah, 
But the solidarity within the union movement has to be upped big time. We are up against big tech, who is even encroaching on the power of democracy, right? Big tech now has the millions of dollars, the technology, the information that is more or less controlling all of us. So we must demand with a very strong voice towards the ILO, towards the OECD, towards the United Nations, number one, that the worker's voice must be heard. Now, Martin, I know this might sound crazy, but I give lots of speeches around the world. I very, very often ask people in these speeches, who in this room is a worker? And you know what? I never get more than 60, maximum 70% of the hands up. We have been accustomed to thinking, I'm not a worker, I'm a teacher, or I'm an IT specialist, or I'm an academic or something. Now, number one, we are all workers. Work is work, no matter how it's conducted, uh, work is work. So the worker's voice must be heard. I don't want to be an anomaly on the global scene. I want this to be something that we really work with. And for that, we must demand that you guys in Education International, that the ITUC, all the global union federations put the digital world of work center stage. That's number one. Number two that we must demand of these organizations is to fill enormous gaps in the rights world. That has mainly to do with workers' data rights. Just for your information, before the GDPR was signed, there was actually four or five articles in there on workers' data rights. They were removed in the very last second. In California, there's a data protection regime, which is called the GDPR Lite in common language, resembles that of Europe. There's an amendment on the table right now to remove workers, exempt workers from the data protection. Now, why? Well, of course, because the data that we produce as workers is highly valuable and they don't want us to have rights of of, you know, right to rectify, to know, to change, to block, and so forth. In the rest of the world, Africa, Asia, there's nothing called workers' data rights. So here, again, we should push these international organizations to really table that. The ILO should have a convention on workers' data rights. That would be a brilliant way forward. And then we have all the other things. So the right to be human, now, what do I mean by that? By that, I mean you very soon, Martin. You don't count as a person what your dreams, desires, aspirations are, because there's enough data about you that they can predict your behavior. So, you know, you might do something else than their model predicted, but oh, that's just an anomaly. That's a statistical difference. That, that's okay. So how do, we remain, how do we maintain the right to be human? Now, this sounds very abstract, but I really mean that sincerely. And then, as we spoke about before, skills. Yes, it's an important issue. It's not the only issue. But in this world of increasingly precarious work, of more and more automation, where more and more people are losing their jobs, we must demand of companies and public companies that they have an obligation, a so-called people plan, as I call it, to re- and upskill their people, to help them onwards if, if, if they are in a position where they will lose their jobs and so forth. This should be, you know, almost a human right is access to this. And then there's a the last issue, which is very close to my heart. 
And that is the growing digital divide between the global north and the global south, where, you know, 50% of the world's population still do not have access to the internet. What are we doing to make sure that people have equal opportunities to thrive in this digital world in respect of human rights, privacy rights, and so forth? How do we make sure this gap doesn't just keep on growing and growing, the divide gets bigger and bigger? Uh, And how can we empower our sisters and brothers around the world who do not have the same um, possibilities or digital infrastructure as the rest of us do? Well, Christina, as we've been talking about the classroom perspective, if you were to give a teacher one piece of advice, what would it be? Critical thinking, critical thinking, critical thinking, that they themselves are critical towards, they ask the questions, they're curious about these systems, but they more importantly teach the younger generation to that, that you know, to really be critical towards all these tools, to know there's nothing called a free lunch. Critical thinking, critical thinking, critical thinking. Well, you've brought forward some huge questions. And in the spirit of solidarity, it is the strongest note to end on. And I do want to be clear that we have so much to talk about here that will respond to our listeners, but we could well do a series of podcasts on this issue. And on a human note, and I always end with a personal question, I know that like myself, you're a keen biker. I'd like to ask you, Christina, what is your favorite bike ride? (laughs) So my favorite bike ride, I have to say, I'm blessed to live in a very beautiful part of the world where I have vineyards and mountains and bike paths to go exploring in. Very recently, I was just on a long trip, like 50 miles uh, from where I live, and I entered into this whole area just outside Neon, where I live, that looked almost like paradise. There was not a car. There was mountains, fields, trees, and it went on and on and up and up, as it does here with mountains. But I was momentarily, I felt like I was in heaven. Well, that's a lovely note to end on. For those listeners who are interested, mine's the Karapoti, which is also a race, a very arcane piece of knowledge there. We'll see if anybody knows what it is. Um, I'd like to thank you for your time, for your engagement, and we're delighted to be working with you on this issue. And we will certainly come back to these questions again. Thanks, Christina. Thank you, Martin. Bye.